Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD Manhattan North Homicide Sergeant with nearly 27 years. And tonight, I have as a guest, retired NYPD first, de uh, first grade detective, Michael O'Keefe, who's all, also the author of at least three novels and numerous other uh, written works. But tonight we're going to discuss, this is actually part two of, uh, of this series, we're going to discuss the Netflix documentary, uh, The Ripper. And we discussed it in the last time. One of the things that we, we discussed the last time was that the two documentarians, uh, Jesse Vile and Ellen Woods, uh, they wanted you to look at the time and the place where these murders occurred. How, how people spoke about women and the effect that that had on the police investigation, which they uh, clearly felt uh, had a, a negative connotations, in addition to how journalists reported this case. At this point, I wanted to introduce, this is Michael, retired detective Michael O'Keefe. Mike, welcome to the show. Great to be back, Bill. It is great. You know, when we look into this case, we both know we've both worked major, major investigations like this. And when you when you talk about a serial killer, and we've seen serial killers in New York City, and one of the biggest ones was also around the same time as this, and it was the son of Sam. Mm -hmm. And the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, uh, he inflicted terror on an entire city where people, and mostly women, were afraid to go out. They were afraid to go out in their cars. They were afraid to go to nightclubs. They were afraid to walk on the street. They were afraid to walk home. Even back then, the mob the, uh, who owned most of the nightclubs, they like wanted to find this guy because he was hurting their business. Yeah. So the same thing sort of happened. He turned, this, he turned uh, Yorkshire and probably most of England upside down based on the violence and, and the fear that he inflicted in the population. You want to talk about that, Mike? Yeah, well, it's uh, what well, it started off, uh, they were fairly localized, the murders. They were in the Yorkshire area. Uh, that particular part of England, uh, kind of in... Uh, Mike, you can see what's up on the screen, right? Yeah. It's kind of an industrial ruin. It was a depressed area. It was an area that uh, basically London and the, and the higher ends of England kind of shunted to the back. It wasn't very important. They didn't want anything coming out of there to uh, mess their political cover up. But uh, at the same time, they weren't terribly concerned with life as it existed in Yorkshire uh, until this guy got going and he created such a frenzy of fear that they had no choice but to get involved and to uh, and to. Uh, to care and in, in that respect there there was kind of a a, a class separation there where, where the well-to-do really didn't didn't care a whole hell of a lot about the everyday existence of the poor but uh the documentarians didn't stress the class aspect uh, as much as they did the sexism and um they felt that uh this was took place and was allowed to continue because of a uh an institutional uh, state of sexism and misogyny and 
after looking at the documentary, they didn't make their case very strong. It's just, you know, Mike, one of the things, one of the things that uh, I would just want to explain to our viewers is that there's something called victim uh, profiling and there's people that are in certain professions that put themselves at a much, much higher risk to become the victim of a homicide. And I'm not blaming the victim whatsoever, but if you're working as a prostitute, you have a much, much higher chance of becoming the victim of a murder than someone that's a housewife, for example. If you're out on the street pitching drugs, you have a much higher chance of becoming a victim of a murder, specifically just because the risk you're putting yourself at. So when you compare this to this case where they're saying that the police didn't care because these women were prostitutes. I think you know, Mike, how many how many people investigated the first murder? I had notes on it. I think it was upwards of 175 on the first one. Uh, I mean, they took it, they called out that specialty squad and uh, they were going door to door. They searched for evidence and they kept at it for, for months at a time. Even without leads, they kept banging on doors. Uh, so there wasn't, uh, there might've been some public indifference, but there wasn't, I didn't see any indifference on the part of the police department because they pretty much put every asset they had into that case. Yeah, they did. But uh, I mean, I think that, you know, more is not always better. And you know that full well, when you work on a homicide, if yeah. it's a high profile homicide, they may send 50 detectives. And at some point they're going to, uh, tone it down to maybe a workable number of maybe 10 or 15. And that, you know, that you can work better at it. When you have 50 guys there, they can't all be intimately involved in every aspect of the investigation. So they're just going out there uh, taking care of the checklist, basically, you know, the things that must be done. And one of the things was that they, the documentarians complained about also was romanticizing the Ripper. And that was probably done by the press. You know, first of all, calling him the Ripper, you know, also had, you know, intonations of stealing it from a different era, from Jack the Ripper. Yeah, well, it's Victorian England. It's uh, the ultimate English crime fantasy. And but it actually occurred. And and, and a lot of people don't uh, don't realize Jack the Ripper only did four murders. Is that right? uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, they were horrendous. They were all prostitutes, and he uh, and he did rip them. He cut them up, but yeah. uh, but it was only four murders, and it was only the over the space of about two years. And so, this I mean, this case was actually over the space of a much longer time, even though they counted it as from 1975, and he was finally caught in January of 1981. Right. He actually uh, committed a crime in 1969, that was probably one of the first Ripper-type uh, assaults. And the, the, the woman who was a prostitute lived, and the police caught him, and they actually let him go. Right, yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, and they had incriminating statements from him. They had, you know, her witness identification. They had the license plate on the, on the, uh, on the van that he fled from. I mean... If nothing else, this should have produced a record that remained a, a red letter uh, item in his record when 
you start having prostitute murders that involve having their heads caved in from behind. Yes. This girl lived, but that was the MO of this. Absolutely. And there were, so, there were subsequent non-fatal attacks prior to him starting to murder uh, that bore the same MO. And he came to the police attention on those as well. But for whatever reason, when it became a murder pattern, nobody realized to look at him. And he had a he had a record of this type of behavior to begin with. Now, part of the problem, uh, to be fair to the cops at that time, they were a decentralized force. You don't know what the communication was from one department to the next. But the other thing that they didn't have the benefit of, obviously, was computers. Absolutely. Yeah. So they weren't able to amass that data in a newfangled way. But I remember when I first came into the detective bureau, we didn't have computers either. You know, Mike, that's and funny. We got information. No, but it's funny that you said that because I felt that in the 90s, the NYPD was way behind lots of other departments because we were still using the DD5 system with typewriters and carbons. I miss and, those. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to love the smell of them. Yeah. But the thing was, is that, you know, that system was so antiquated because you couldn't search, you know, the system in a computer. Like if, if, if you're looking for the same perp as someone in the 105 in Queens and you're in the 3-4, you'll never know that unless you correspond with that detective some way. And how would you know that you're both looking for the same guy? Right. How would that pop up? You know, but the complaint system, the DD5 system, once became computerized, you could search it, and if someone else was had a perp that they were looking for or a specific MO or a specific signature, you could search that and find out, wow, look, there's three other precincts that have the same problem. Well, the, the first computer system that we were able to avail ourselves of that, that had any type of uh, search capability was the car system. Right. And those were, I think, six category crimes uh, involving violent crimes, uh, people that were arrested and complaint reports that were in that. So you could actually do searches based upon that. Uh, and then from there, the next system that came out was uh, was BADS. And that gave you a little bit more ability to search things. Uh, but by the time I retired in 2010, everything was automated. Everything was searchable. Everything was on computer. Yeah, but, you know, the, the systems weren't connected. Like you said, there was cars, there was beds, there right, was gang, right, right. you know. Well, now it's so, unified, isn't it? Yes, I, I think so. Now I, they it must, unified. It must be much better. I'd also like to give another message from one of the documentarians, uh, Ellen Woods, who's, who said she wanted to make the story about the women, not about okay. Peter Sutcliffe, who was the ripper. Mm -hmm. How people speak about women, how people speak about victims. And the, she blamed the press for demonizing prostitutes. And we spoke about before how you have to assess risk. And what is, you know, what, uh, in this case, you were at risk if you were just a woman walking by yourself. You were well, at that, risk. That, that really was the nature of this case. It, it's, he, while he was attacking primarily prostitutes in the beginning, he started branching out. And by the end of the pattern, uh, he wasn't ever, he wasn't attacking prostitutes at all. He was just attacking women that weren't attended on the street. Women in general. Yes. Yeah. Women in general. Uh, the problem was, and you know, I don't even know if I want to blame the media on it. 
I blame the police investigators who released all of that information. Who the investigators need to know that she was engaged in prostitution because that's going to put you in 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 certain environments to look for your criminal because that's where he's going to show up. Right. The media doesn't need to know about that. And they should have never been told. It should have just been mother of four uh, out on her own. They can make their own inferences based upon the time yes. and where she was coming from. But to categorize them as prostitutes did not help your case at all. If anything, there was public ap apathy once you labeled them as as prostitutes. No, absolutely. And, and the thing is, is that we discussed this off camera that had we known uh, this, ha say this happened in New York City, we would definitely get some undercovers. Even if you had yeah. to have a man dress up as a woman and dress up as a prostitute to uh, ensnare this guy in, which yeah. is done in New York City. We, you know, we have undercovers well, do that. We also had female undercovers forever. I mean, if you remember Muggable Mary. Yes, yeah. No reason for a guy to dress up. We got plenty of brave female detectives. Absolutely. And I don't think they... That occurred to them back then to do like an undercover operation. It's, I mean, they, they were checking cars, which was, okay. it's good. I mean, doing more research into the case, the documentarians weren't great about detailing everything that they tried. Uh, they were checking cars and yeah, that was, that was a, a, a key tactic, but they really weren't as deep into it or uh, as thorough with it as, uh, as they should have been. Yes. Uh, and there should have been some there should have been some undercover presence on the street that never really occurred. For sure. You know, Mike, I wanted to talk about because this is a serial killer, we want to talk about organized and disorganized offenders. And I'm just gonna read uh, a couple of paragraphs on what organized and disorganized offenders are and how it affected this case. According to the offender and crime scene dichotomy, organized crimes are premeditated and carefully planned. So little evidence is normally found at the scene. Organized criminals, according to the classification scheme, are antisocial, often psychopathic, but no right from wrong, are not insane, and show no remorse. Based on historical patterns, organized killers are likely to be above average intelligence, attractive, married or living with a domestic partner, employed, educated, skilled, orderly, cunning, and controlled. They have some degree of social grace, may even be charming and often talk and seduce their victims uh, into being captured. This guy showed a lot of those traits, yet he showed some traits of a disorganized defender also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it sounded like you were describing Peter Sutcliffe when you were reading that paragraph, but then there are elements within each crime you can see where he kind of went, um, he kind of split from the script and he engaged in some disorganized, disordered uh, behavior at the crime scenes. Yeah, like, you know, the number An one- example was going back. Yes, yes. And revisiting his victims. Well, you know, that's, that's like a sexual thing too, is like sometimes a uh, serial killer will go back to the scene of a crime just to relive the feeling of, of the kill all over again. Yeah, and yeah. that's why sometimes in serial cases, investigators will actually, you know, conduct surveillance at the scene to see who comes by. You know, I mean, 
it's a one in a million uh, shot, but it can happen. And I don't, I don't know if Peter Sutcliffe, another thing they, that serial killers usually do is they take uh, souvenirs or, or trophies right. with them. And that's another way they relive the crime. They get like a sexual uh, jolly out of it, you know, to, to relive the crime. Well, but, what he was what he was doing, and it might have served the purpose of of the trophy, is he kept his weapons. The weapons were never found at the scene. Right, right. He knew what was used based upon the pathological evidence. But that's, that's when they point. actually did a search warrant of his car and his house, that's when they recovered the tools, and he pretty much had every ha- he he owned a dozen ball peen hammers. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was his tool uh, of choice. To yeah. render the um, the victim unconscious, and he was using the he was using the round side uh, because he was leaving perfect round holes in the back of their skulls. So that's crazy, you know. And, and very it, particular crime, you know, Mike. That's also a uh, part of a disorganized offender is the blitz style of attack, right. an overwhelming, you know, attack on the victim. You know, but in in fact, some of them survived these blitz yeah. style attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the first victim. A uh, Wilma McCann, age 28, had four children. You yep. want to you want to speak about that, Mike? Well, she was uh, she was characterized immediately as a prostitute and clearly she was in she her behavior was consistent with uh with someone who would be involved in prostitution, but uh I don't know if they ever really established that she was a prostitute right Uh, based upon her son's description of their life when he was a child in the house it stands to reason she was probably engaged in prostitution just for the economic need of it right well you know england yeah mike england at that time had some really bad bad economic times oh yeah post-war england up through the uh 60s and 70s was a horror show yeah economically so some people just resorted to prostitution because they just there wasn't anything else yeah there was nothing else yeah exactly but that that particular case with wilma wilma's found in a field uh, a couple hundred yards away from our house behind our house the housing project that she lived in they call it council housing it's low-rise projects um she's got blunt trauma two perfect round uh wounds in the back of her head and uh now, the stab wounds, now, it, while everything looks ordered, including the staging of her body, the rest of the attack looks to have elements of disorder in it. Uh, with respect to the stab wounds, uh, she stabbed twice in each uh, each breast. Uh, her abdomen is torn open. There's a, there's a slashing wound in her abdomen. And uh, the medical examiner actually said you could tell from the wounds and, 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 and the round object that was used to stab her that this person was taking the time to drive the weapon deeply in and swirl it around to see the effect that it had. Oh, my God. So there's a curiosity there that leads you to believe, OK, we're kind of going around the bend to a disordered killer here. Yeah. But the rest of his behavior throughout the crime means he gave it some thought. Um, he stabbed her 15 times in the neck, chest, and abdomen, 
And was this uh, Wilma? I thought Wilma was only stabbed was only stabbed the uh the three times. No, according to my notes, she was stabbed 15 times in the neck, chest, and abdomen. Okay. And this was the case where they were assigned 150 police officers and 11,000 interviews were conducted to to find, you know, right. as a start of this investigation. So the to other say that the you other know, element of it is that the police characterized it as a uh as a non-sexual crime, yet semen was found on the back of her underwear. Right. So can you imagine like today, that would have been the smoking gun that would catch the perpetrator in homicide? Yeah, there wouldn't be a second attack. Right. There would not be. Exactly that. You know, and also, as you we discussed in an, uh, the uh, first show, is that when you use a uh, an edged weapon, you usually cut yourself at some point because mm -hmm. it's such a violent uh interaction between the perpetrator and the victim and then if you cut yourself you're going to leave blood on the scene and again today uh dna would be recovered on the scene right the second uh victim uh is a woman uh, her name is emily jackson uh he stabbed her 52 times yeah. she was in dire financial straits and she'd been using the family van to exchange sexual favors for money. So she was working yeah, as a Yeah, with her husband's blessing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When I read that, it was a little crazy. Yeah. Um, Sutcliffe hit her in the head with a hammer, then dragged her body into a rubbish strong yard and used a sharpened screwdriver to stab her in the neck, chest, and ab abdomen. Sutcliffe stamped on her thigh, leaving an impression of his boot. We spoke about that. Yeah. So, you know, that's a class a characteristic because uh, I think they did actually identify the type of boot it was. And then if they could have got those boots and they collected the evidence good enough, they could have got an individual uh, characteristics would have possibly yeah. identified. Well, the, 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 the boot shows up. It starts to show up with the second murder, but it continues to show up intermittently in the other attacks. Uh, but what's interesting is as much as the... Uh, the stabbing and the uh, and the blunt force trauma appear to be disordered characteristics. He very clearly stages the body. He leaves it in such a way that sticking out from the alley, the the, the only the thing you see are her, her feet and her legs splayed open, and you can't miss the fact that there's a woman laying on her back with, with her legs spread at, at the end of the alley. Right, so right. he was trying to get people to find his kill. But that's also, a, 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 if you speak to any psychologist, that's a, a big uh, indicator of a sexual-related crime, a sexual-related right, homicide. Right. Well, the, the other thing that psychologists and psychiatrists have figured out is for some people the thrill of, of, of violence is no different chemically in the body as the thrill of sex and violence actually in, in many cases supplants the sex act. Right. They get more gratification from it. So it's, you know, it's just because you don't have any elements of, of a sex crime on the victim doesn't mean it wasn't sexual in nature. No, absolutely not. I just want to find a, um, That's the uh, first Stung, victim. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. Uh, uh, Wilma McCann, who was only 28 years old, but she had four kids. And 
In this documentary, they interviewed, that's her son. Uh, oh. They interviewed him in regards to uh, what occurred. The kids were like, uh, I think there was four kids like less than five years old when she was murdered. Yeah, and I read actually one of the daughters uh, because of this uh, actually took her own life later on. Like she could never cope with what had occurred to her mother. Yeah, I mean, this guy, besides the people he killed, he destroyed hundreds and hundreds of lives, you know, yeah. uh, of the of the victims' families, you know, uh, and just even people that were terrified of him just because of the reign of terror he ran over over five years in in the in this Yorkshire area, you know. Yeah, you don't know how many personal decisions were affected by his his behavior or the threat that he posed. The third victim is an Irene Richardson. She was also 28 years old, February. Uh, so he, he he did his attacks were done in October, and then he did one in January, and he did one in February. Uh, but this this one was in uh, the one in January is 1976. The February one is 1977. So we're talking about almost 13 months apart. And uh, Miss Richardson was a Chapel Town, Town sex worker, right? And uh, she was bludgeoned to death with a hammer. Tire tracks near the murder scene resulted in a long list of possible suspect vehicles. And we know that the perpetrator drove a truck. So his tire tracks were also an identifier, possibly, right. they could have put together. Right, but he also drove cars. And uh, I believe the tire tracks they came up with weren't, weren't truck tires. They, they were from a car. From a car, okay. And... Uh, Oddly enough, when they finally, when he was finally arrested at the end of the pattern, when the uniformed cops finally grabbed him before he was able to kill the the, the last prostitute, uh, those tires actually matched the tire tracks that were found on the crime scenes. Which is such such strong evidence in a court right, of Forensically, law. I mean, you're at the scene; it's the only tire track that you're the only one there. Right. It's. Uh, very, very powerful evidence. Let's keep. Let's move on to the next one. Yeah. Patricia Atkinson, thirty-two years old. Uh, she was also a sex worker from Bradford. He murdered her in her own apartment, where police found a footprint on her bedclothes. So that's the second time we have a footprint. Yeah. So and also, also on the uh, on the linoleum and carpeting. All right. He left bloody footprints, and the pathologist looking at the crime scene said that it was clear from the bloody footprints and the very clear boot prints, by the way, in those blood footprints that he left, got to the door, regarded the scene and then came back and adjusted the body because he wanted it to look a certain way. So, which is, you know, which is the earmarks of, of an ordered psychopath. Uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, the thing is, I wonder how back in 1975, in England, how did they document a bloody footprint or a footprint on the bed? You've been to scenes, and I've been to scenes, mm -hmm. where you'd have emergency service come in, and if it was on the floor, they'd actually saw the floor out and take the whole print on the piece of wood with them. And yeah. then they would take that to a forensic lab, and they'd reproduce either the photographic or reproduce the print uh, the way crime scene guys do. Yeah. But I wonder how they did it back then. It had to just be photo analysis, but they were very they they were able to very clearly match 
the footprints, the bloody footprints with the boot print that came off of uh, Emily Jackson's thigh. Yes. It was the same boot print. Right, right. And, and this one was uh, on her bedclothes. Let's move on to Jane McDonald, 16. On June 26, 1977, Sutcliffe murdered six-year-old, 16-year-old Jane McDonald in Chapeltown. She was not a sex worker, which made locals concerned that the Ripper would attack any women. Her body was found at an adventure playground in Reginald Street, Leeds. Is this, what wasn't the, the when they, when he killed a non-prostitute, didn't they want to discount it somehow? Originally, uh, I mean, they did all sorts of mental jujitsu in light of this. First of all, Jane McDonald at 16 is a child. Never mind that she's not a sex worker. She's right. a child. Yes. Where she was found is not where she was grabbed. There was a there was clear indication that he had dragged the body to stage it in the playground, which kind of suggests a, a, a sort of psychological sticking it to society that, that not only am I murdering children, I'm putting them in their playground for you to find. So it's almost a, a cat and mouse. Uh, however, the lead investigators had so bought into the idea that he that he hated prostitutes that they suggested that he thought she was a prostitute, that he mistook her for a prostitute. Right. Ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. He did not. If he did, he's the stupidest man in the world. Well, Mike, one of the things we also found out through uh, reading about this case and not from watching <laughs> the documentary was that Peter Sutcliffe liked to hang out in the prostitution areas and the bars right around the prostitutes. And he had sex with some prostitutes that he didn't kill prior to going on this, you know, serial killing spree. Yeah, well, his first attack uh, and the victim lived uh, back in 1969. He had actually, I, I don't know if he got his pocket picked, but in any event, he got rolled for 10, 10 uh, pounds by a prostitute. And he was out with his friend looking for that prostitute when he came upon the one that he attacked. And he claimed... We don't know because it was never recovered. It was never fully investigated. But he claimed that he hit her with a with a rock and a sock. Right. And uh, but it could have been a hammer. Nobody looked at it. Right, because they had him in custody. They had they had incriminating statements. They had an identification from the victim who was a prostitute, but not the prostitute who had robbed him. And uh, it got squashed because she didn't want to press charges. Right. They let him go. It was, was still a, the record of the arrest, but... Uh, that was in 1969, a, a full six years before the the murder started occurring. Yeah, but, but from what we've come to understand, when they finally arrested him and, and, and they put everything together and they put their biases away and they went through everything and found old cases and actually sat down and confronted him with them, he admitted that he had done them. There were a lot of non-fatal attacks prior to him killing. Absolutely. He worked his way up to murder. Yes. Which is, knowing what you know about serial killers, it's, you know, when you learn to ride a bike, you're not jumping on the racing bike right away. You got to work your way up from the tricycle to the training wheels to the sissy ball. No, absolutely. Now you're on your racing bike. It's a gradual thing. Uh you know, you're not Jack the Ripper on your first 
first couple couple ones out of the barn. No, not at all. Getting a feel for this. And and I think what it is is he was building his fantasy and building to the point where he needed the murders now to complete the fantasy. And that's when it became a murder pattern. You know, Mike, I just want to shout out to some of our live chatters. MC's audio, audio, thank you for showing up. Bugsy Cruiser, Earthkeeper, thank you. Jane Koak, Tribaletti, thank you from Southern New Hampshire. Hello, Southern New Hampshire. Ryan, investigative group, one of our biggest fans. Uh, Bill Ryan. Bill Ryan. Uh, Jane Kowak, Tribaletti. Uh, Earthkeeper. Ben Miller. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we're very happy that you're here. The other thing, uh, when you spoke about, you're right. There, there was at least, I think, eight, uh, eight more attacks that... Uh, were never reported besides yeah. the seven that did get reported of women that survived. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's probably also to do with the fact that, you know, you, I think you told me a story before where someone came in to report it to the police and they just threw her out of the precinct basically. Yeah. That was, um, trying to remember her name. She, uh, she could have put this thing to bed. I think, she was actually attacked shortly after the first murder. Mm -hmm. And it was only when it became a pattern. And it was actually after Jane McDonald was, uh, was killed that it went, uh, it was a big news thing now because it wasn't a prostitute. It clearly wasn't just prostitutes. Right. It involved every woman in England who was, who was vulnerable. So she realizes this. And, and, and now because all the information is going into the paper, and the description of the crimes and the perpetrator, she realizes this is the guy that attacked me. And she went into the police station to tell them, I'm sure that the guy that attacked me is the guy who's doing these murders. And they laughed at her and they threw her out. That's unbelievable, you know. All right, let's go. There's another one. October 1st, 1977, Sutcliffe murdered Jean Jordan, a sex worker from... Uh, Manchester. Uh, in a later confession, Sutcliffe said he realized that he gave her a new five-pound note. And yeah. um, after he killed her, he went back to retrieve it because he felt that the police might be able to trace this brand new five-pound note. And he was right, but he didn't... When he went back to... Uh... To get the note, he didn't find it. It was uh, secreted in a side pocket in the purse. So the right. police did end up getting that note, and they were able to trace it to a great extent. Uh, that actually brought them to interview Sutcliffe. So there was a, a there was a path that the evidence took them. Right, I, I, to the there was they, guy. they interviewed five thousand people in regards but, to that five pound note, yeah. and he was one of them. But that crime scene differed from the others in that there was extraordinary mutilation. Uh, he introduced fire to it, uh, actually burned her hair off, smashed her face in, and uh, cut her breasts off, which is different than the extent of the mutilation in the other bodies. And everything, her clothing, all the items in her purse were scattered all over the place, giving the impression that this was a disordered murder. But it's only when he went back the second time that he did all of that. Right, he right. actually staged the body previous to that with just the head injuries and some stab wounds. Right. So as I said before, 
Sutcliffe exhibited traits of an organized and a disorganized offender. Yeah, he definitely had some rage issues. Yes, yes, big time. I mean, the mutilation and the, the sexual mutilation of some of these bodies, uh, I think psychiatrists or psychologists would have a field day with this guy's brain, you know? Yeah, yeah. Crazy. And then uh, on October 9th, 1977, there was a Gene Jordan who was discovered by a local dairy worker and future actor, Bruce Jones. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's the one we're talking about. With the that's five, the one we're talking about. The yeah. five pound note. Uh, the yeah. next one was an Yvonne Pearson, age 21. Uh, she was a 20 year old prostitute from Bradford who was murdered by Sutcliffe on January 21st, 1978. He repeatedly bludgeoned her across the head but with a ball peen hammer. But prior to that, there was a survivor. Marilyn Moore, mm -hmm. who uh, was a confirmed prostitute. She had been hit in the head three times. The tire tracks matched from the previous crime scenes. Uh, and she was the one who was able to give them a detailed sketch. Which, for whatever reason, as far as I can see from what I've read and what I saw in the documentary, they never really did much with the sketch. I know the investigators had it, but I don't think they ever got that out to the media and got it out to the public. Yeah, according to my notes, it says that Moore provided one of the best photo fits of Sutcliffe. I guess that's what they call it in England. Of, of, yeah, a, sketch a sketch, a photo, a photo fit. Photo yeah. fit. Um, I love some of their language. And you interestingly know? enough, when they finally do grab Sutcliffe, he's a dead ringer. Right. It's, it, it is. It's a, it's a fantastic job. Well, some of his co-workers called him uh, the Ripper. Because he looks so much like the sketch. Well, that and the fact that the police had been talking to him after every murder. He was like brought they had in... been interviewing intermittently as they, 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 these were going uh, going on. They had spoken to him. He was brought and in a total time, of nine times. But yeah, by the time that it ended, there was nine times that he was interviewed for uh, for the for these crimes uh, and. For whatever reason, and usually it was because they had locked into the idea that the guy was had a Geordie accent and wrote the letters uh, and sent the tape. Yeah, uh, they had they had that uh, right. The letters were. Um, let me just give it a look. I think they were we red might... herring. Yes, I think we might have a copy of. They actually posted that on a billboard. Yeah. yeah. A, a copy of his handwriting. And they also had the uh, the tape was put out everywhere on television so everyone could listen to it. Yeah, they were playing it constantly. And uh, that caused the, uh, the the main investigators, actually, the, they weren't even investigators. They called them detectives, but they were the bosses. They were the administrators that ran the case. Some of the detectives on the field, as a matter of fact, one of the first times that Sutcliffe was interviewed, the detective that actually interviewed him didn't like his answers. Right. And got a bad feeling about him and thought that he fit the, the, the description perfectly. The only difference was he had a Yorkshire uh, accent, which if they had listened to the girl that lived, you had a picture of before. Um, oh, the uh, the innocent, the girl that survived. Yes. Hang on a second. Yeah, the 15-year-old. I think that's her right there. Yeah, that's her. If she had, if they had listened to her, and it's one of the reasons why they discounted her case that it wasn't the Ripper... She said very clearly, he's from around here. That's a Yorkshire accent. And when the detective actually took took it to uh, 
that the head investigator, uh, Old Oldfield. Yes. Yelled at him, threw him out of the office. Told him if it, if anybody uh, tells me uh, that the guy looks like the sketch and he doesn't have a Geordie accent, you'll be doing the rest of your career in traffic. Crazy. I want to shout out to Rebecca Hicks uh, from Wisconsin and Melody mm -hmm. McAtee from Indiana. Welcome to uh, Real Crime Stories. Midwest uh, is in the house. Midwest, they it's cold there. We have a little yeah. cold here in New York, but not like out there, you know. No, they have real winters there. They have real. That's right. <laughs> so we, you know, part of this investigation was because it was a, a massive undertaking with a, a lot of lack of technology. And there were some really glaring investigative snafus, some glaring mistakes that uh, allowed this guy to wreak havoc uh, for over five years and to kill 13 women and to attack another at least seven and probably a lot more than that. Yeah. When you think about an investigation like this, you know, serial killers are very rare these days. And one of the reasons is because they get usually get caught early enough that they don't become serial. You know, yeah. and one of the reasons is because of the technology we have. You know, DNA, cell phones, video cameras, computers, all of those things help us to uh, capture, track, trace uh, serial killers so they never get to do as many as they uh, could do in another era. Well, nowadays society, everybody has a cell phone. Society has self-imposed a GPS tracker on themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. You know. But, you know, the thing is, getting back to the premise of the documentarians, that this whole case was predicated upon the fact that uh, how women, how women were treated, how people spoke about women, how um, you know people spoke about poor people, and what we know, Mike, is because we worked for years in poor neighborhoods that there is much more violence in poor neighborhoods, and that just happens to be a fact of life. Well, dysfunctional life promotes dysfunctional behavior. It's, uh, it's yes. kind of common sense. Absolutely. So it was, but it was also, you know, their premise that the prostitutes were demonized. And I think we addressed that before that. Law I don't think that they were demonized. Uh, I do believe that the, that the media themselves minimalized their importance with respect to reporting the stories, but that's the media. They're selling newspapers. It doesn't affect the police work. Right. Unless you're giving them all your information, and now you have nothing to hold back uh, for you, you know, for the perp. Uh, it actually was a great quote from one of the reporters early on in the pattern. He referred to these murders as fish and chip murders. They were today's news, but you're going to wrap the fish at the fish and chips the next day in it. <laughs> so, you know. If, you know, if the head crime reporter in the biggest newspaper in that part of England is referring to a, a woman's murder as a fish and chip murder, obviously he doesn't consider her life very significant. 
But well, the detectives spent a lot of time, money, and effort to try to solve it. So they weren't in agreement with the media. No, they, they certainly did. There was a lot of time and effort, but there was a lot of, um, I would say, not great investigative work from the top, not the boots on the ground. Well, that, that, that largely was the problem. You, you really can't centralize an investigation like this the way that they did. Right. Just, there was no communication between the head and the hands doing the work. Uh, the fact of the matter is the documentarians refer to them as detective inspectors. Right. Yeah, but they weren't detectives. No, they weren't. They were police administrators. Right. You look they, great with, with, your, with, your, uh, with the scrambled eggs on your hat and the stars on your shoulder, but you're not going to find the bad guy. That's going to be me down here in the dirt. Right. Not you and well, your office. Well, ultimately, the way, the way he was caught was and, – and when I watched uh, – the um, some of the reporters that are, are reporting on this now, when they said, "Oh, they just um, they called they made, it luck." Yeah, they they luckily made the arrest. No, that that's not called luck. No, that that's was called, the soul of police work. Yes, that's called good police work. It's called yeah. observation, making a car stop, questioning, searching, bringing the person in, interrogating. That's good police work. Yeah. So yes, I would agree there was some poor police work. But when good police work happens, at least acknowledge that, you know? Yeah, no, they, they, they want to chalk it up to chill. They got lucky. No, they didn't get lucky. They right. did their job. Well, it's just like, you know, when we compare a serial killer like in New York City, the son of Sam, and there was a huge task force to capture him. Hmm. And one of the ways he was caught was a summons was written on his car. And the police officer that wrote that summons got promoted to detective for writing that summons. Interestingly enough, though, the full story on that is him and his partner wrote that summons that night and then swung out without putting it into the bin. Oh, wow. So it was in the locker. The detectives, and it was, I, I forget the, the lead detective, Eddie. Uh, I should never forget his name because he was a legend on this job. Yeah. Uh, but they went and interviewed the woman who watched them actually summons the car. Uh -huh. She was suspicious of the car. So now they went back to the local precinct looking for the summons. It's not in the box. And they try and find that. They look at the roll call and they see who had it. They call the cop at home. He's like, yeah, it's in my locker. Like, well, you better get your ass in here and get it. So the my detectives locker. need it. <laughs> so that's how they ended up getting the summons. The detectives knew about the existence of the summons before it was handed in. Wow. So. And I remember there was a detective. You know who tells that story, actually, because his father was one of the bosses on the task force, was uh, Charlie Dowd. I don't uh, know if you remember him. He was uh, he was a, he was actually my uh, he was my zone captain that put me in for second grade. No kidding. Brooklyn North. Yeah, uh, we had a, we had a lieutenant Dowd in the two four. I don't know if they were related. Different guy. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie ended up retiring as a chief. He had communications. You know, it's just like there was a detective in the 2-3 who was actually still there, and he's a great detective, but he would always take notes and not do his DD-5s, and he'd spend one whole day just typing. Yeah. And then, but the thing was, we had this case that was really important. We had to bring him in from home just to type. To type it, as well. It reminds me, it reminds me of that, you know? Yeah. Well, there was a time when I first got into the detective bureau, and we were still doing the pink and the blue fives, the carbons. You didn't do your fives until, until he was in the box. Right, right. 
And then you sat there on overtime typing all your fives. <laughs> you were working out of that steno pad. I just want to give a shout out to some more of our um, live chatters. Joey Brooklyn, what's up? Uh, Le Marie Vlog, uh, Robert123. Yeah, you know me, Rebecca Hicks. Uh, no, I haven't actually seen the uh, most recent interview with Chief Walker. I'll. Oh no, actually, I did. I'm sorry, I did. I did watch it. Uh, we we did a show last night with Duty Ron, and we addressed that. Um, we're pretty much running out of time, so I think I'm going to uh, sum up uh, real crime episode number two, part two, with Detective retired first grade detective Michael O'Keefe. And one of the reasons we wanted to address this, we both watched that Netflix documentary on the Ripper. And it seemed like the documentary people were applying today's standards to a 1975 case. And I don't, I don't agree with uh, their premise that this case was messed up because of, uh, you know, the way they felt towards women and the way that they felt, uh, towards poor people. I just felt that there was some bad investigative work in this case. And there was a lot of mistakes made. And also the technology um, prevented them from uh, doing a better job in this case. What, what's your feelings, Mike? Final thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Classism, sexism, and misogyny had nothing to do with it. It did not promote additional murders. It was a matter of a poorly organized and conducted investigation that uh, that prevented the detectives from basically using the evidence that they had already got. Right. You know, it just, uh, I mean, they, they were on the right track. They knew what they were looking for. They continued to look for it. I just don't think that they were using the best and most economical means to examine what it was that they were trying to examine. Right. And, uh, part of it, maybe the people that were in charge of the investigation didn't have that kind of street experience. The other part is, this was the first, other than Jack the Ripper, 100 years before, in the 1880s, England didn't have these kind of crimes. So yeah. They were, kind of, you know, they were kind of learning as they went. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know, it just bothers me when someone goes into a documentary and states a premise before that, when they really don't know a lot about investigation. Yeah, well, but basically the documentarians had their premise and everything they did with respect to making the film, they used to try and justify that premise. Yes, I, I however, agree. However, having watched the whole thing, they failed to make their argument. I, I agree. I agree. But you know something, maybe they should have um, questioned some people that have had done major investigations before. Uh, you know, when they talk about classism, hello, classism... Most violent crimes are done in poorer neighborhoods. I'm sorry if you didn't learn that at uh, where, where you went to college, but that happens to be, we, the police don't pick the neighborhoods where the violent crimes well, This was a prime example of that. This is a poor to working class working man with some serious psychological issues, living in this poor area, victimizing women from the same socioeconomic and racial class as he. Right. There's no difference. They had the same, basically living the same lives in the same area. So classism doesn't fit. 
And with respect to most of the detectives that worked on this case, with the exception of the big superintendents, these were local people who were the police. Right. That's who was doing the hard work on the street to try and figure out who this guy was. But they and even it was pointed- those, And it was those local working class cops who were basically thwarted by the bosses having a preconception of who the bad guy was. Right, exactly. They wouldn't accept looking at the evidence to form a new opinion that would have focused on something. But you, you know, Mike, something. they even, the documentarians even pointed at the fact that the police told women not to go out, not to be by themselves. Like, hello? Yeah, hello. This guy, the Ripper, is killing women. Yeah, you and know? the thing is, the thing is, the police weren't telling them not to go out. They were suggesting they don't go out. Right, right. That's and called if they, good advice. And That's if they do go trying out. Trying to protect you from yourself. Right. If you do go out, don't walk alone. Have someone yeah. walking with you. Go out in groups. Yeah. Now it's a party. <laughs> Enjoy yourselves. Well, Mike, I think we've hit the, uh, we actually hit almost 55 minutes. So I think it's Uh-oh. time to say, do you want to say anything? You want to plug anything? You got a new book no, coming just, out? Uh, if, uh, if you like good crime fiction based on real cases, check me out at michaelokeefortha.com. There's uh, links to my Amazon page where you can buy the books. And look for my next offering in the Patty Durst series, probably coming out late spring. That's a great well, book. That's a great book. Man. I read all your books so far. Well, the follow-up is a is a the, actually the third in the Patty Durst series, Detective Patty Durst series. It's uh, going to be titled Burnt to a Crisp. It's based on uh, one of my old homicide cases, a uh, arson triple homicide. That's great. Joey Brooklyn, thank you so much for that super chat. And thank you so much for listening. So this was uh, another episode of Police Off the Cuff slash Real Crime Stories, episode number two, part two on the Yorkshire Ripper um, serial killer. I'm Bill Cannon, and I want to just thank Michael O'Keefe for... uh, critiquing this case with me. Thanks again, Mike. Pleasure to be here. It was fun as always. All right. Good night, everyone.